You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, good morning again, citizens. It is really good to be here with all of you again. And it's just my luck that it happens to be Church Picnic Sunday. That is sweet. Hopefully the church picnic goes better than the baseball game I had against some of your young fellows this week. And that is all we will say about that. So you guys have been in the Psalms over the past number of weeks, and I'm really excited to look at Psalm 21 for, with you this morning. It was read for us just a moment ago. Thanks again, gentlemen. And I think our approach today is going to be to sort of try and gather up a little bit of context for this psalm, and then walk through it in three chunks, where we'll look more closely at the themes that's being expressed in each, and what it might mean in application for us this morning. So, three chunks, three themes, and three applications for us. Why don't I just pray as we begin, and then we'll jump right into the text. Let's pray. Lord God, we do welcome you here into our midst this morning. And really what we mean by that is that we are acknowledging that, God, you are present here by your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we open your word today, would you just light up this text for us? Would you shine into our hearts what we need to see to be transformed, to be made more into the likeness of your son, Jesus? God, we believe that he is to be found in your word, and we submit ourselves to his authority this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So if you have a Bible or a device, please pull it out, and we will turn to Psalm 21. Now in my Bible, there's a little title given to the psalm. Maybe that's true in yours. Mine says, The King Rejoices in the Lord's Strength. That's kind of like the song title. And this title was added a lot after this was written. So it's not scripture. It's extra. But the next little phrase that you'll see in your Bibles, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, that little phrase is actually part of the text, meaning that we are taking that as divinely inspired, meaning that we can rest assured that this is for sure a psalm of David. And the to the choir master piece gives the idea that David expected this song to be sung corporately probably as a nation, maybe in the temple that was about to be built. We should probably also say that the David here, that this is a psalm of, is King David, the greatest king that Israel ever knew. He began a shepherd boy, David and Goliath, same David, and he turned into a great warrior who would end up ruling God's people as their second ever king. And I should probably, like, out myself early. Apart from Jesus Christ... King David is my favorite human in the Bible. I just, I love this guy. I find him so fascinating and complex and godly. He's described to have a heart that chases after God's heart. He's also one of the few individuals in scripture who God comes and makes a direct covenant with, which is significant. And actually, that's kind of the context for this psalm. In 2 Samuel chapter 7... It's sort of the narrative of David's life. And basically, David has just been installed as king. He's been crowned king in Israel. The old king Saul is dead. And so God comes to the prophet Nathan and tells Nathan to go tell David what God is going to do for David. So 
So I'm just going to read part of 2 Samuel 7 for us. Now therefore, Nathan, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you've went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that you, to you that the Lord will make you, David, a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers in death, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So that's a little bit of context for Psalm 21 because the author is this King David whose line has just been promised by God to remain on the throne forever. And this psalm appears to have been written after David has been crowned king. There's genres in the psalms. It's kind of like different types of music. And this psalm is what we would call a royal psalm, meaning that it kind of focuses on the ideal, righteous, chosen king. That's sort of the focus of the psalm. It paints the king in his best possible light. Now, David was not a perfect man. He was not a perfect king. But here, the qualities that God expects from his chosen king are what is being described. And so I said we would look at it in three chunks, so let's begin in verse 1. O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts. It just starts with full-on glorious praise. And actually, we'll skip ahead to verse 13, the last verse. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. And so these are like the bookends, and they're the first chunk of our psalm today. They're kind of like the chorus of the song. And they really give the highest truth for us today, which is God is strong. The rest of the psalm is kind of like how we see that truth played out. But the truth of the matter is that God is strong. And that saying that God is strong is saying something about God. So really the psalm begins and ends with theology. And so this morning we're going to have to do some theology. Everyone looks very afraid. Scary, right? It's not that scary, I promise. Theology is simply studying God. It's about knowing more of God. And there are three words in this very first verse that are really important for our theology. And the first word is Lord. You'll see that right away in the psalm. That word is in caps, right? In your Bibles. It's got the caps lock on. 
Now, if that word Lord ever appears in the Old Testament and is not in caps, it's the Hebrew word Adonai. That kind of means like owner or master, ruler, and it can be used for God or for people. But if the word Lord is all capitalized, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. That can only be used of God. That's the personal revealed name for God. It's, it's the name that God uses when he makes covenants with people. And the word Yahweh means the self-existing one. That's big for a name. Or the eternal one. It's an important word for us. Now the second important word in that first verse is the word strength. And that word actually translates almost identically to how we use it in English. Strong, power, force, might, boldness. And then the third important word in that very first verse is the word salvation. Meaning deliverance or victory or rescue, help, aid. And these three terms, Lord, strength, salvation, are really important for how we understand God. Because they're truths about God that are absolutely essential for belief in him. If you believe in God, but not in one of these three things about God, you do not believe in the God of the Bible. They're that important. So first, Yahweh, meaning that God is eternal and self-existing. Let's pull that apart a little bit more. It means that God wasn't created. Instead, he creates. That God dwells outside of the bonds of time. That he has always been and he is going to go on forever. Nothing outside of God sustains God. He needs nothing. It's a big word. But beyond just the meaning of the word Yahweh, it's also significant that God would tell us his name. It says to us that he's personal, that he wants to be known. He like reveals himself. And so it means that even though God is eternal and infinite and therefore he could never be fully known, he can be known some. Through his revelation of himself, we can catch like a glimpse of God. We can know enough of God to follow after him. We're tracking so far? Nice. You guys are about as still as Woodside. That's fabulous. Must be the heritage. So that's Yahweh's second word, strong. Meaning in this context, in the psalm, all-powerful. We'll see that a little later on in the verses. Inside of God, in God's essence, is all strength. All might, all force. He's almighty God, right? He is able to accomplish whatever he wills. And so let's compile those first two words. Now we have a self-existing, uncreated, eternal, all-powerful being who has personally revealed himself to man. It's a lot of theology in just two words, right? Wow. Now the third word is like the outcome of those first two. If God is self-existing, uncreated, eternal, and all-powerful, then God can save. He's able to do that. He can rescue. He can help. He can deliver. Because that means in God is 
all victory. He, he couldn't possibly be defeated. Nothing could stand against this being, and anything that would attempt to will be utterly overwhelmed or overtaken. And so our psalm this morning basically begins with, God is strong to save. God's victorious, it says in another translation. And that also implies that God is like, like physically present. He's actively involved in the world. Because he's not just like deliverer in theory. He's deliverer in reality. He works in this world in mighty ways. And for us, that means we can look at God as trustworthy. We can trust in him for our rescue. He's going to act. And David certainly does this in the psalm and actually throughout his life. So that's sort of the first chunk. So what might our application today be from those first two verses? Because this psalm is written like about 3,000 years ago. What could possibly still be true for us today? Well, the theology we just looked at is still true today. God remains an uncreated, self-existing, eternal all-powerful being who has revealed himself personally to man. That's a lot to know about God. But theology, like we don't just know things for the sake of knowing them. Theology has a purpose. Studying God leads to something. And there's this phrase that goes, theology must lead to doxology. Doxology means praise. Theology must lead to praise. We gotta. When we know about God, we will inevitably worship him. We'll sing to him. That's actually why we sing on a Sunday morning. Many of you raised your voices already. And look at verse 13 again. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. That is the fitting response to knowing things about God. And so really that's, like, that's the main theme of the psalm. That God is strong to save. And we're going to come back to that at the end. But now we're going to turn to the middle two chunks of the text. And it's kind of broken into like the good news and the bad news. So we'll start with the good news. In verse 2, we'll go to verse 7. You have given him his heart's desire. That's David. You've given David his heart's desire, not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessing. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you and you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Now this is an amazing little chunk of scripture, because look at what King David is saying here. It's quite a list. David is saying that God has given David the desires of his heart, everything he has requested. That God has blessed him richly. God has given him a long life. Then it gets a little strange. God has given him glory. God has given him splendor and majesty. God has made him glad with joy. And God has established him in such a way that he will never be moved. Wow. Our gut reaction might be like, David is lying. <laughs> At least he's got to be embellishing the truth. There's no way all of that could be true, right? That sounds like the perfect life. 
we should probably, before we assume, remind ourselves of David's life. So let's do the very quick version of history. The Israelites are in Egypt. Moses takes them out of Egypt in the Exodus. Joshua takes them into the promised land where they live for years and years under the rule of judges. And then the people of Israel sin by asking God for a king. We want a king to lead us. So God allows it. He gives them King Saul. Saul very promptly disobeys God and gets annexed from the kingdom. And God tells Samuel the prophet to go and anoint the next king who is a shepherd boy named David. And so Samuel does that. David gets anointed the king. He's called and commissioned by God to do this work. And so he gets anointed king. And from that moment on, he spends the next 15 years of his life on the run, living like a fugitive. He's in constant danger. He's hiding and living in caves, fighting battles. He's oppressed and chased. Imagine that. He's anointed king, and he's living like a criminal. He must have been desperate to see what God had promised come to fruition. And he wrote psalms during those years too, where he expresses this like sorrow and distress and confusion, even anger, but also this deep, deep trust in God. And now, by the time we get to Psalm 21, this promise from God has become the reality. And not only has God originally, his, his original promise has now been fulfilled in that David has been crowned king. He's sitting on the throne. But as we read earlier, God goes way further than that. And he promises David that this throne he is sitting in will go on forever. That David's line now has rights to the throne permanently, and it's God who is guaranteeing it. And so David, of course, he breaks out in praise. Now, we said earlier that this is what we call a royal psalm. That's the genre. And a royal psalm portrays a king, almost always David, as the chosen, anointed, righteous king over God's people. And often the king in the psalm is like acting correctly as God's representative to his people. And that's what we're seeing here in this psalm. Because King David is given all of these things that are normally reserved for God, right? He's given glory. We almost never hear that of a person. That's almost always reserved for God. He's given splendor, majesty, life, blessing forever and ever. And so God has allowed David to represent him in some divine ways. Now, King David is not a god. <laughs> He's a flawed and very sinful individual. But he is looking like God here. Now, there's a common term for that in the Bible. We call that image-bearing. As human beings, we have the unique mandate in all of creation to bear God's image. You and I and everybody else, we're supposed to represent God to the rest of creation. And in this psalm, David is doing just that. Now, we also read in that second verse something that is a little hard to believe. It says that David has been given all that he's asked for, his heart's desires. Again, we're like immediately tempted to think that's, that's too good to be true. <laughs> I wish God would give me the desires of my heart. And we should pause here and be careful to note that the things that then David relishes in, that he's celebrating as the desires of his heart, are also the things that God had promised to do. And so they are in line 
with God's will. He's celebrating that he's been made king. That was God's decision. God has saved Israel from their enemies. God has decided to give David a long life. These are God's plans. And so what David is actually glorying in as the desires of his heart are the desires of God's heart. And I think here we see a little bit of why David gets described in Scripture as this man after God's own heart. Because David's heart wants so badly the things that God wants or the things that God has promised. His own will for his own life has fallen under God's will for his own life in a very profound way. And so that's kind of the second section. And again, we got to ask ourselves, what's our application? How do we put this part of God's word into action in our lives? And I think we have two principles that we see in here that are like, they're intertwined. And they're also crucial for any Christian's walk with the Lord. And they are the ideas of submission and sanctification. Some nice big churchy words, right? Better define them. <laughs> what I mean, submission is willingly giving up your will to God. That's submission. Willingly giving up your will to God. And sanctification is about partnering with God's spirit to be made more and more to look like God's son. And so you can see how those things are obviously, they're going to be overlapped. They're related. And David in this psalm is a model of this for us. Like, you think about it. He gave up his life, his livelihood. He leaves his hometown, his family, his friends, all in pursuit of God's call, in response to God's call on his life. He submitted to God's will for him instead of his own submission. And then David walked in righteousness. He learned God's law and obeyed it. He put it into practice. Sanctification. Now, friends, that's more or less the definition of discipleship. And so if you're putting your hand up, you're identifying yourself as a Christian, I'm a disciple of Christ, that means that you do these two things. You give up, you exchange your desires for God's desires, and you follow after him. And the New Testament has a bunch of phrases for basically that. It says things like this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. Christ must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. And so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We are to put on Christ. And so this application from the second section actually ties really closely to the first. Because if we believe that there is an all-powerful and eternal God who has a personal relationship with us, it just, it follows that we would submit ourselves to him. Now, I'm not, of course, I'm not saying that we do this perfectly. <laughs> we don't. And King David didn't. But the more we rely on God's spirit in our lives, the more we submit to and commit to his will for us instead of our own, the more fulfilling our lives will be. I promise you that. Friends, I hope that you have a time in your life where you can pray these verses in honesty. That you can say that my heart's desires have been met in Jesus Christ. 
that I am blessed through Jesus Christ. Like, you and I, we have the opportunity to know God. We can know his strength. We can sense his victory. We can be fulfilled. We can live life to the fullest when we join God in his will for this earth. And sometimes that seems impossible, right? But thankfully, we can also pray to have our hearts transformed by him. That's really good news. <laughs> but this last section of the psalm can sometimes feel like bad news. So if, if the truth is that God is strong, and the good news is that we can know God, and we can join him in his will for the world, what could possibly be the bad news? Well, the bad news is that not everyone aligns their will with God's will. Let's start in verse 8. Your hand will find out all of your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight, and you will aim at their faces with your bows. Yikes! Like we go in this psalm from David saying that God has intervened to bring him blessing, that majesty has been bestowed on him, to saying that God has intervened to swallow people up in wrath, to burn them up, to aim bows at their faces. And as Christians, we're often pretty uncomfortable to use that kind of language of God, right? We're fine to say that God is strong in things like him bringing blessing and victory, but victory over who? Like, victory implies defeat. And we may be uncomfortable to say that God is strong in consuming his enemies with fire. That God is strong in not allowing evil schemes to prevail. We kind of get squeamish talking about God like that. We almost treat that like it's bad news. But it, it's not bad news. That's actually good news also. Now the phrase good news, that's the word the gospel, right? They're interchangeable. And what the gospel is, is Jesus' completed work. That's the gospel. So Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, glorious resurrection, and his promise to return. That's what the gospel is. And part of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that we are going to go and be with him forever. That actually, right now, Christ has gone to prepare a place for us, and someday, hopefully soon, we are going to be united with him. We will be with him forever. And part of the gospel is also that, although Christ has gone, he is returning. He's going to come back, and when Christ comes back, he is going to make right every wrong. That sin is going to be judged perfectly. That the wicked are not going to go unpunished. That's good news. Now there's this, there's this text in the New Testament that really closely mimics this section of Psalm 21. 
It's in 2 Thessalonians 1. The Apostle Paul is writing to Christians who are being persecuted, and they're, they're losing their hope. And so he writes to them. And listen carefully for how this kind of mimics what we just heard in the psalm. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. You notice the similarity in the imagery there. That God is powerful in his justice. And so God's strength is also displayed in conquering evil. That's, that's good news. But the application for us from this section is tied up in our definition of evil. Right? Now, does anybody remember the Sunday school definition of sin they learned? Everybody's forgotten. No one knows what sin is. Fantastic. I got to call Darcy. Just kidding. Sin is anything we think, say, or do that disobeys God. Right? You remember that? Flannel graph? Anything we think, say, or do that disobeys God. That's what evil is. And so anytime we act, speak, or think opposite of God's instructions you find yourself fighting against God. All sin essentially comes from disbelief. Let me tell you what I mean. If we wholeheartedly believed that God was all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, and all-good, we would always submit to his will. It's only when we unintentionally or intentionally decide that we somehow know better than God that we sin. And we hear this today, right? That can't possibly be what the Bible says. It keeps me from being fulfilled. Or I know better, or we've come far enough in the 21st century to know that that's actually not really what's best for humanity. Or as long as it's two consenting adults, we kind of get to decide what's moral. Wrong. That's so wrong. You're setting yourself up as God. Like, you're basically deciding that somehow your little three-pound brain has a more profound grasp on reality, human history, morality, the nature of purpose and the universe than the eternal, self-existing God. And there are real consequences to being an enemy of God. Like, God is good. God is love, we read in Scripture. And so things that are not good and are not love have to be judged perfectly by our good and loving God. And so just like God is strong in enacting his will through blessing and victory for the godly, God is strong in enacting defeat for the wicked. Now, the New Testament reminds us often that our battle 
is not with flesh and blood. It's not with other people. This is a spiritual fight. And so friends, flee from sin. Run. Run away from sin. Guard yourselves from sin. It leads to death. The cost of sin is death. But again, we've got, we've got good news. Although the wages of sin is death, sin pays out its workers in death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the gift of God. And this psalm is pointing right at Jesus. Let me explain. He's in here in a bunch of ways. So firstly, God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that his line would remain on the throne forever. Anybody know who the king of Israel is? They haven't got one. they got a prime minister, right? So how could this possibly be true? It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's in the tribe of Judah, in the line of David, and he sits enthroned forever. He's right here. Second, it's, this is a Davidic psalm, meaning it's written by David. And any Messianic Jew knows that David is this archetypal king, this forerunner for Jesus Christ, that any time you hear of him, he's picturing a little version of what Jesus is going to be. So he's here again. Then we said this is a royal psalm, which paints the king as a righteous representative of God. Well, the only perfectly righteous representative of God was Jesus Christ. He's the only king to ever do that perfectly. And actually, he's in every single part of the psalm. Let's look at a couple sections. In this section, we read, He asked life of you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High... He shall not be moved. Well, all of that was done perfectly by Jesus in his first coming. His glory was made great through salvation. He received blessing forever and ever. He got splendor and majesty put on him by God. He trusted in the Lord, his Father, perfectly. And then the next section that we just looked at about conquering evil, we saw that that is going to be done by Jesus perfectly at his second coming, at his return. We read about that in 2 Thessalonians. But it actually gets even better than that, friends. Let's go back to verse 1 and reread it. O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts. Now, in English, we miss something here that is obvious in Hebrew. And so a Messianic Jew, they read this first verse in Hebrew and they see Jesus right away. Here's why. In Hebrew, Lord is Yahweh. We talked about that already, right? And the word for salvation is Yahushua. And so if we sort of go halfway in the verse, we get Yahweh, in your strength, the king rejoices, in your Yahushua, how greatly he exalts. Now, here is what we are missing in English. The name Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua or Yeshua, which literally is just a combination of the words Lord and salvation. The name Joshua means the Lord saves. 
Yahweh saves. Friends, that is what God told Mary and Joseph to name their son. Jesus is a derivative of Joshua. His Hebrew name is Yeshua, a combination of the words Yahweh and Yahushua. And so God was announcing just in the name of Jesus that here on earth in the flesh is the Lord, the uncreated, all-creating one. The one who has no beginning and no end. The one who needs no sustaining and in himself sustains all things. The one who authored life and in himself is life itself. When Jesus said his own name, he would be saying, I am the self-existing, uncreated one who saves. Wow! That's Jesus, friends. This is who we're following. All of our theology is about studying him, learning about him. And right here in this psalm, it's a thousand years before Christ breathed as a baby boy. His reign and rule and salvation is being proclaimed. This is God's perfect word. And it is screaming to us about God's perfect word, Jesus Christ. He's to be found in here. He's hiding in plain sight. He wants us to know the joy of looking for him, of being found in him. And so you and I, we can read this psalm 3,000 years after David penned it with a little more of the story filled in. We can read the first and last verse like this. Oh, Jesus, in your strength we rejoice. In your salvation how greatly we exalt. Be exalted, O Jesus, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so, so thankful for Jesus. Father, we know that you displayed your strength most perfectly by sending us your Son to come and live in human flesh, to be our rescue. That, God, your strength was displayed most in our salvation. That through Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death on the cross, through his glorious resurrection, we can be made like you. And so we, we celebrate, we give glory, splendor, majesty. We put those things on Jesus. Lord God, we just, we pray that we would know that victory that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Lord, we're so thankful for your word that tells us about him, that, that is just revealing him to us. I pray that we would go there and look for him And Christ, I'm, I'm thankful for your rescue. We're just, we're feeble little beings. We fumble around darkly in this life and sometimes we think our own ideas are so big and important and like we know better. But Lord, we want to submit ourselves to your word, capital W, to Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would be made big in our hearts, that you would be more and more. So that wherever we go through this life, that we would be proclaiming your name. This name that is above everything else. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on heaven and earth. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.